Welcome everybody, uh, glad to be back. I've been really enjoying this and I'm kind of sad this will be my last session. Uh, we're going to round out our logical fallacies today and next week Eric will take over talking about formal logic. Which means uh, you all have to dress up when we're doing formal logic. <laughs> everybody has to dress up when we do formal logic. Yep. So we'll pick up right where we left off. Um, we're moving into statistical fallacies and then we'll finish off with propaganda. So our first statistical uh, fallacy would be what we call an appeal to authority. And this is actually better known as an, a false appeal to authority. What happens is that somebody appeals to an expert that isn't really an expert. So in order for an appeal to authority to be correct and not fallacious, you need two, uh, two things. You've got to have expert consensus and legitimate expertise. And if either of these is missing or misused, the argument is fallacious. So expertise has to be directly related to the point being made also. So examples of a fallacious appeal to authority would be a brain surgeon on the subject of rocket science, uh, a world-class tailor testifying on the subject of auto repair, a five-star general on the subject of constitutional law. That one comes out of a episode of Piers Morgan that we were watching. <laughs> and then the testimony of apostates on what Jesus may or may not have said during his time on earth. <laughs> it's a little shot at the uh, Jesus seminar. And, uh, everybody understand appeal to authority? This is really common, especially on your opinion news. Uh, you know, I pointed out the five-star general. Piers Morgan had uh, Larry Pratt on to talk about gun control. And Larry Pratt is president of Gun Owners of America. And he just really wanted to go after Larry Pratt. And so he appealed to General McChrystal on, on how uh, rifles work. And McChrystal doesn't like civilians owning military-grade rifles. So, But, you know, his expertise is, is in the military and being a five-star general. It's not in constitutional law and what the Second Amendment means and how it applies to you and I. So that would be a false appeal to authority. You know, uh, one of the issues that we deal with often when we're talking about how do we know which doctrine is true, which Bible verse uh, we're interpreting correctly, um, one of the problems that we can have in evangelicalism is that we merely line up our scholars. We have seven yep. good scholars over here and we have seven good scholars over there. We line up maybe our lexicons or whatever. But what we need to be able to do as Christians is to get into the text of the verse and, like Bob has said, become better readers and get to the primary evidence so that we're not just weighing, well, R.C. Sproul says this, but John MacArthur says that. And so we want to get to the source, and that's one of the problems with appealing to authority is the authority often, they do err. I mean, look mm -hmm. at how many authorities are right now claiming that beyond a shadow of a doubt, global warming is true. Well, you know, Bob has shown us that there's some big problems even with the scientific logic in that. So the point is when we're dealing with biblical studies, we always want to be better students and be able to get to the original source, which are the verses themselves, weigh the data for ourselves so that we don't rely just on, well, R.C. Sproul says this, John MacArthur says that. That would be a form of an appeal to authority mm -hmm. that we want to avoid, I think. Thanks for bringing that up. We're going to actually come back full circle to that on our last uh, fallacy of the day when we talked about taking things out of context yeah. and how that can be a, a false appeal to authority, too. Yeah. Uh, so our next one is a hasty generalization. This is one I think my family is generally uh, pretty bad at. and <laughs> So studying fallacies, I'm, I'm kind of trying to break the cycle, but uh, uh, along with the next one as well. But a hasty generalization is to draw conclusions based on insufficient evidence or incomplete statistical sampling. And uh, you know, so some of the very basic examples there, you know, everybody loves pepperoni pizza. Well, you literally have to talk to everybody to, to know that that's true. Or all roads lead to Rome, you know. Uh, if you've got one road that doesn't lead to Rome, that's not true. There are no honest politicians. <laughs> so, so, uh, and I have a, a little poem that helps illustrate this one. Some of you may have heard this. It's kind of a cute little poem. And forgive me, I'm not, not the best person at reading out loud, so you have to bear with me here. But... The poem is called uh, Six Men of Indostan. It was six men of Indostan, to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind. 
that each by, by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant and happening to fall against the broad and sturdy side at once began to bawl. God bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall. The second feeling of the tusk cried, Ho, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp, to me tis mighty clear, this wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal and happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands, thus bold, and, bold up and spake. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out his eager hand and felt above the knee. What most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quoth he. Tis clear enough the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth who chanced to touch the ear said, I'm the blindest man, can tell that what this resembles most, deny the fact who can, this marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope, then seizing on his swinging tail and f that fell within his scope. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Indistan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion ex exceeding stiff and strong. Though each was partly in the right, all were in the wrong. And uh, another one kind of kind of similar is the weak analogy. Um, this is often used. An analogy can be really good to demonstrate opinion. You know, if you, you have a hard time communicating, analogies can do a great job to help get your point across on an opinion. But to, to prove a fact, um, analogies fall apart really quickly. And what happens is you, people take two things that are insufficiently similar and they use them analogously to try to prove that one proves the other. So a common example would be uh, if you want to make an omelet, you have to break a few eggs. And then uh, this one I came across while I was studying for the session here. Uh, an atheist says, a Christian God is like a bad parent that leaves unguarded chainsaw in a room with little children. Is uh, Reba Gretsch here? <laughs> Reba came up to me last week and she's having a lot of fun with the class. And she couldn't wait until I got to post hoc ergo propter hoc. Reba, you want to take the microphone and help describe this fallacy? It's over by Bob. <laughs> yeah. Um, what I know of the post hoc ergo proctor hoc fallacy mm -hmm. is that a lot of people think that like A and then B, therefore C. For instance, like Jeremy has been very respectful, disrespectful lately, but um, uh, and he's been playing the gu gu guitar lately. Therefore, because he's been playing the gu guitar, he's disrespectful. That's a good example, yeah. When you take two things that are unrelated but happen close happen to each to other mm -hmm. in sequence, to blame one on the other would be what we call a post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy. And this is also called a false cause fallacy, if you don't want to do the Latin. False cause. And it's a correlation causation. But thank you, Reba. That was a great explanation. <laughs> well, so she had a, a wonderful example. And in fact, I think I read that before. Was that in the book? Yeah, no, uh, my sister had it. The, the logical fallacy uh, detective book, I think. Yeah, and I've got that book up here. It's a great uh, resource for all these fallacies. But uh, other examples might be that it, it rains after a jet flies over, so you blame the jet for the rain. Or, car crashes after a dog barks, or, or your friend says, you know, the Vikings are going to lose, and then they lose. You know, you blame it on your friend. <laughs> so, correlation does not prove causation. So uh, this is from the Your Fallacy. It's actually yourlogicalfallacyis.com. I, I got the URL wrong on that one. Yourlogicalfallacyis.com example. Pointing to a fancy chart, Roger shows the temperatures have been rising over the past few centuries, whilst at the same time the numbers of pirates have been decreasing. Thus, pirates cool the world and global warming is a hoax. <laughs> so. <laughs> so, everybody get the post hoc ergo propter hoc? It's kind of a fancy term. But, uh, appeal to ignorance, uh, sometimes also called an argument from incredulity. 
It appeals to a lack of contrary evidence. It usually assumes a false dichotomy and basically says, you know, if you can't prove it, then it must be true. Or if you can't prove the inverse, you know, the converse is true. So this is, uh, I go back to week one on this one. Keep in mind that burden of proof. It's, it's a big deal on this one. The uh, person making the claim is the one responsible for proving it, not the, not the inverse. We're moving along quickly today. We might run out of time and get out early. <laughs> Texas Sharpshooter. Texas Sharpshooter takes unrelated bits of information uh, and put, it presents them in, a, in order to appear as if there's a pattern. The name comes from a joke about a Texan who fires shots at the side of a barn, then paints a target centered on the biggest cluster of hits <laughs> and aims to be a sharp, or claims to be a sharpshooter. And here's a real life example uh, of a Texas sharpshooter fallacy. A Swedish study in 1992 tried to determine whether or not power lines caused some kind of poor health effects. The researchers surveyed everyone within a 300 meters of high voltage power lines over a 25 year period and looked for statistically significant increases in rates of over, four, over 800 ailments. The study found that the incidence of childhood leukemia was four times higher among those that lived closest to the power lines, and it spurred calls to action by the Swedish government. The problem with the conclusion, however, was that at the number of potential ailments, 800, was so large that it, it created a high probability that at least one ailment would st exhibit statistically significant difference just by chance alone. Subsequent studies found that there was no correlation at all between high power lines and childhood leukemia, either in causation or even in correlation. <laughs> and then the last of our statistical fallacies is, this was a common one too, called the gambler's fallacy. And the, it, it goes like this. You have some kind of something happening, that there's a statistical chance that you'll have a or B, you know, the example we give here is flipping a coin. 50-50 chance that you'll get heads on each coin flip. Well, the gambler's fallacy would say that if you flip that coin 10 times in a row and it was always heads, you would, you would say the next time it has to be tails. It's, it, we're due. It's just, it's got to be, you know, we're due for it. You see this all the time, people at slot machines, you know, they, oh, it's going to hit soon. It's going to hit soon. So that's where it gets its name. So... In reality, every, every coin flip is independent of every other coin flip. It's always 50-50. So, do you have any questions or comments about any of the statistical fallacies that we just covered? Kind of went through them quickly. Any comments? Paul? Paul. I don't, certainly. Uh, we're in a very, we're, information-oriented society that, that respects information greatly. And mm -hmm. so numbers are, and statistics are, really greatly revered uh, almost. Um, mm -hmm. There are times when uh, facts don't count or numbers don't count. Is that right, would you say? Or would uh, that be a fallacy? When they're know? misused. They're, when, for instance, uh, you know, Bob talked about global warming. I mean, that's one where we can show there's a lot of evidence to the contrary. There are a lot of studies that say that the rise in CO2 follows the rise in temperatures. It doesn't cause the rise in temperatures. So if, if, one, if one is true, then the other is misusing statistics to make their case. just want to be in the camera there. A the face made for radio. Yeah, look at that one. Oh, <laughs> well, my back's turned anyway. Um, one thing that contributes to this gambler's fallacy, too, as I was thinking about it, is the belief, especially today, that chance is a force. Mm -hmm. And like you're rightly pointing out, is the force that flips the coin isn't chance, and therefore you're guaranteed a 50-50 split. It's your thumb. Right. Okay? Now, the way that comes, and I think is important in our culture today, is there's atheists that claim that the universe came about by chance. Mm -hmm. And so chance is no longer a word that describes mathematical probability. Now it's being used as a force. And what Andy's pointing out here is when you flip the coin, the force that's being applied is applied to your, by your thumb. It's not that chance is not doing by anything. statistics. <laughs> right? Yeah, chance yeah. is just statistics. Now, the way that, way that came up that was very important is Remember, there was something called a quantum leap, and there was something called the indeterminacy principle. That is, when an electron went from one orbit to another, 
You had people like Niels Bohr and these other physicists that were saying it happened by chance. And so they were ascribing causal power to chance. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, it's a fancy way of saying that nothing did something. And you know who detected that error was Einstein. That's why he said that God does not play dice with the universe. So the point is, if we start using chance as a power or a force, realize we're just dressing up ignorance and saying that nothing is doing something. Mm -hmm. Therefore, if you ever hear an atheist saying that, well, this universe came about by chance, all they're saying is that nothing did something. And that really comes up, I think, in this fallacy. The force applied in the coin is the thumb. Therefore, you're not guaranteed a 50-50 split, even though statistics would have you believe mm -hmm. that. So, yeah, anyway. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Yeah. So we'll move on to propaganda, the last section of our logical fallacies. Uh, for this session. And before we get into specific fallacies, I wanted to read this from Wikipedia, because when we hear the word propaganda, that's kind of a loaded term these days, and, and I want to point us back to kind of a pre-World War II understanding of the world, of the word. A propaganda is a form of communication aimed towards influencing the attitude of the community towards some cause or position by presuming, by presenting only one side of an argument. Propaganda statements may be partly false and partly true. Propaganda is usually repeated and dispersed over a wide variety of media in order to create the chosen result in audience attitudes. While the term propaganda has acquired a strongly negative connotation by association with its most manipulative and jingoistic examples, like the Nazi Holocaust, propaganda in its original sense was neutral and could, could refer to uses that were generally benign or innocuous, such as public health recommendations, signs encouraging citizens to participate in the census or the election, or messages incurring, or encouraging persons to report crimes to law enforcement, among other things. So when we hear that term propaganda, keep this in mind, not what you generally think of with, uh, you know, like the Nazi justification of the Holocaust as being a uh, wicked thing. And our first would be, again, very common. You're going to see a lot of these in advertising. In fact, almost every one of these gets used very often in advertising. The appeal to emotion. Sometimes broken down by emotion, if you're looking at other sources, wanting to study this further, you're going to see appeal to pity, an appeal to fear, appeal to pride. Um, and it just pushes people, manipulates them with their own uh, emotions. An example from childhood, eat your dinner, there are starving children in China. <laughs> now, I'm told by my parents that when I was told that, I said, well, great, let's box it up and send it to them. <laughs> so, so an, an example that you'd see in advertising would be like the, the surface cleaning solutions um, for cleaning your bathroom. They'll show you a microscopic view of all the bacteria floating around in your, sh in your shower or your, your sink and, uh, and appeal to that fear of bacteria to try to get you to buy their uh, solution to clean up after yourself. So. Hey, Andy, on that one, mention mm -hmm. abortion too. Oh, yeah, abortion really does take this one a lot. Once you show somebody that, um, that what we're talking about is a human being, you can show biologically that you're, I mean, we're talking about killing human beings. Often they'll, they'll twist that and they'll say, well, but this person will grow up in poverty. I think we talked about that in a prior example. Oh, no. Well, there, you know, that's, <laughs> that was under moving the goalposts, but it's also an appeal to emotion as well. Now, we don't want these people to grow up in poverty. And usually you show, well, most of the world is poor and most of the world values their life. Uh, how would this child be any different? Then we have appeal to the people, and it's sometimes also called a bandwagon fallacy. And actually, sometimes this is split into two fallacies. And when you see it split, you usually see appeal to the people used to prove facts, and the bandwagon is used to shape opinion. Um, I don't necessarily think it has to be broken like that, but you'll see it like that. And, um, an example from scripture would be when Pontius Pilate asked, you know, who would you like to release, Jesus or Barabbas? And the crowd said Barabbas. Uh, he, he wasn't released because he was innocent or he deserved it. It was just a, an appeal to the people. It was a bandwagon type thing. And then we have a, the reverse of that would be snob appeal or a reverse appeal to the people where it, it's going to appeal to your desire to be different, to stand out from the crowd. Uh, and a few advertising examples there are the, the few, the proud, the Marines. 
for Apple had a campaign from 97 to 2002 called Think Different, trying to draw you away from Intel. Those make sense, they're kind of uh, flip sides of, of similar fallacies. Roger, you look like you got something to say. <laughs> there you go, the Dodge commercial, Guts, Glory, Ram. Or I, I wanted to find an example of another one I'll, I'll bring up later that was Chevrolet when we get to appeal to a tradition, which is this one. Um, appeals to your, form of, your sense of longevity, antiquity, or nostalgia, or tradition. And examples would be established in 1954, serving Minnesota for over 150 years. They're appealing to, I mean, this is, they're just appealing to longevity. They think that because, they want you to think because they've been around forever that they're going to do the best job. And, uh, you know, of course, Roman Catholicism uses this a lot, that, you know, they've been around longer than any other church or denomination, so they must be the one true church. And the example I was thinking of, I, I couldn't find a, a picture, but I read one in a logical fallacy book was Chevy Suburban, established in 1935 and reestablished every year since. <laughs> so. Appeal to novelty. Um, sometimes you'll see subcategorized as appeal to high tech. It's, it also goes along with that snob appeal that we talked about. Um, it's the opposite of that appeal to tradition. It's the latest and greatest. It's new and improved. And uh, it's very powerful when, like I said, when combined with snob appeal. Uh, I, I kind of like to be an early adopter myself, but I don't let that one get to me. <laughs> so. Ah. Or even... Uh, um, evangelical Theological Society. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, one of my professors was somebody that I knew before I began my seminary, and he went to that every year. I don't totally agree with even my friend, but one point he made was very interesting because he'd go every year to this journal or this uh, Society of Evangelical Scholars. Yeah. He said people don't get the podium or get published by just saying what Christians have already always believed, you have to come up with something novel. Mm -hmm. So somebody will come along, well, and be, they can become very famous. Think of N.T. Wright. He became very famous, and he's mentioned in everywhere. I mean, a lot of books. And he, he's, he came up with the idea that justification for Paul wasn't about individuals, but about groups. Mm -hmm. And so when you're reading commentaries, they interact with N.T. Wright and his group justification. But it's false theology and a false argument. But he became famous by having something novel. If you went to one of these professional societies as a Ph.D. in theology and made a presentation about what Christians have always believed about propitiation, People just yawn, yawn and mm -hmm. they, they could care less. But if you come along and say, well, there's some weird thing, and this is what I believe, and I got a PhD, well, then it gets published. That would be an appeal to, uh, to authority as well. Yeah, or just the novel, being mm -hmm. novel. But they're you going, can't I have a just PhD. teach solid theology. Mm -hmm that are doctrines like the Trinity or substitutionary atonement and all that and make a name for yourself. You're just right. going to blend in. Mm -hmm. You might be better than other people at doing it, but you're not blazing any new trails. That's kind of the issue. Mm -hmm. Just to let everybody know, that's what our seminary is elevated. You're going to put a PhD out. Can we get the, can we get the mic? <laughs> Sorry. I want everybody to think about it. our seminaries are elevating novelty because in order to put out a Ph.D., they're forcing you to come up with something that really no one has ever had. And so think about it. Instead of being faithful to the data that we have from Genesis to Revelation, they're rewarding novelty. And in some sense, they're forcing the issue of, of this creative theology that really has nothing to do with the evidence merely to be novel. So it's, it's epidemic to 
there are seminaries now today. And so I think that contributes to some of the heresies that we've seen. So, Peter? Autonomous reason? Um, autonomous in regard to the authority of Scripture. But some of these novel theologies are using biblical data, N.T. Wright does. And uh, Eric and I refuted his ideas on the radio the other day, whenever we recorded it. But it says we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive reward or whatever for deeds done in the body whose deeds in what body an individual's deeds in his own body okay and so the idea that everything's a group you're not going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and say well I was a part of a really good group Uh, argument of ad nauseum is one you see, I think you see a lot of this in political discussion a lot. Uh, it's, it states that uh, an argument is repeated over and over again to the point of nausea, which is where it gets its name, so that most people will want to avoid any mention of it ever again. And it, and it can also be used in the hopes that if it's repeated enough, people will just believe it. I think we've, we've probably all heard this, the statement that it, you know, a lie repeated often enough becomes the truth. That'd be where this comes in. Just three slides left. <laughs> Thought terminating cliche. Uh, a cliche is commonly used phrase, sometimes passing as folk wisdom, used to quell cognitive dissonance. Though the cliched phrase in and of itself may be valid in certain contexts, its application as a means of uh, dismissing dissent or justifying fallacious logic is what makes this thought terminating. And some examples of very common ones you hear, you know, life is unfair, what goes around comes around, you only live once, you know, the judging ones, only God can judge, who are you to judge? Uh, and then going back to that one that we had earlier on weak, an, weak analogy would be if you want to make an omelet, you got to break a few eggs. Yeah. It's uh, on the bumper sticker, books, not bombs. Okay, and the appeal there is that we should spend all our money as a federal government on education and not on the military. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is if we had books, that would solve all the problems of the world, as if the six million Jews being murdered at the Holocaust, the Holocaust was somehow stopped by the academics from the University of Minnesota, not by the United States military, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's, it, that's one that really grieves me when I see it because I know this person. Um, by the way, Romans 13, verses 1 through 4, what does Paul say about the government? He says that they do not bear the sword in vain, meaning that they've been ordained by God to restrain evil. What's interesting, you think constitutionally, the primary role of the government, the federal government, is to what? To restrain evil. As it becomes more Marxist and leftist, it's no longer primarily designed to restrain evil, what it's, what it's going to do is redistribute wealth. And that's as we become more leftist. And so that contributes to the books, not bombs type of mentality. Mm -hmm. oh, Rich? Oh. One, one current example might be um, Syria. We have to get rid of all the chemical weapons that's so, so terrible. And yet Syria is killing 120,000 with all these conventional weapons as well. Mm -hmm. The cliche that, that just really bothers me, and it was so much a part of my life up until about six or seven years ago, was accept Jesus Christ in your heart. I mean, that it, 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 it loses its meaning because it's repeated so often and so universally that it has absolutely no meaning to it at all. It's not mm. biblical. It becomes jargon. It becomes jargon, and it, it has, it, it's like, well, what is that supposed to mean? And I remember around a campfire, somebody asked my daughter, hey, have you said the prayer? Have you said the prayer? Mm. What does that mean? I mean, and what does that do for you, and how is that biblical? And it, it just is amazing the cliches we have in our Christian evangelical world that are sending millions to hell and it just that slays me or uh, another one is 
hate the sinner, hate the sin, not the sinner. It's kind of a thought terminating cliche uh, that we use. And then we only have one left. Um, that would be context to me. I said we'd come back to it, but um, this is just taking things out of context. And of course, you know, we see this one all the time in the church. Everybody here has, has experienced that. Uh, when a risk represents a person's position on an issue, it's also a form of a straw man. And when it misrepresents expert testimony, it's a form of an appeal to authority fallacy. And that's why I said we'd come back, because when you take scripture out of context, you're committing an appeal to authority fallacy. You're appealing to the authority of the scripture by having it say something it doesn't say. And then sometimes these are subcategorized as cherry picking or proof texting. Uh, I, th I think those communicate pretty well what, what they are. Um, picking out data that supports whatever your premise is while ignoring contrary evidence. In Christian theology, we'd consider proof texting to be a form of eisegesis. I just, I could see you got something on your mind. Who, me? Yeah. Yeah, I had something I want to talk about that wasn't covered, but yet it's a fallacy. Yeah, go ahead. Or maybe it was covered and you could find the right category. When I studied um, hermeneutics at seminary, I was uh, blessed beyond measure to have Dr. Robert Stein as my teacher and he subsequently wrote a book that's one of the best on hermeneutics. Mm -hmm. And he identified a fallacy called mental acts. And let me expect, we had to read a little essay by C.S. Lewis to illustrate that because somebody had guessed what mental state C.S. Lewis' mind was in when he had written something else. Okay. And so then he wrote this essay saying they're wrong every time. And it's not even important, okay? So somebody can say, well, when you wrote this, you were upset about the fact that you didn't have breakfast that day. Mm -hmm. Or some, something's going on in your mind that gives you a certain emotional state. Therefore, whatever you said has to be, mean this. And I'd kind of forgotten about that. You know, I remember so you, it. You brought up in the first week uh, deconstructionism. We talked yeah, a little bit about that. It's sort of like mental acts. You have yeah. this motive, you have this emotion, you have this stuff in your mind. Therefore, what you write or what your position is doesn't really mean what it would appear to mean. It means this other thing that nobody, you're not letting on. Mm -hmm. Now, I've seen this come up lately in a political arena because that's where there's a lot of really heated debate going on right now mm -hmm. and I saw it over and over this <laughs> mental acts fallacy somebody was in, in, in these I like you know I must be goofy but I like to watch those hearings <laughs> and back and forth yeah, you're, you can get it on on Fox News Channel but anyhow they were going back and forth you and know Bob we don't believe in penance in our church, right? Penance? Penance. No. <laughs> That's Catholic. Um, so you don't anyhow, get credit for penance by watching that torturous stuff. Yeah, I watched that terrible channel. <laughs> anyhow, um, somebody was saying such and so about the website that won't work and all the money, you know, how what was been talked about. Mm -hmm. And the retort was, well, you didn't want this to work anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> That's the mental act fallacy. Yeah. Okay? The oh. fact that some person maybe in their mind doesn't mm. want it to work, which you can't know, mm. evidently is some sort of an actual argument. What kind of argument yeah. is that? That's absurd. You might find that as like a, an appeal to poor motives, kind of. If yeah. you want to look on Wikipedia, I always I heard it as be... mental acts. You don't know yeah. somebody's mental acts, but you know what they wrote down on paper. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you can even apply that to the Bible. Well, the reason Paul wrote this was he was upset about something that happened that you try to import from somewhere else to try to, unless mm -hmm. Paul tells us his mental acts, which he does sometimes as in Romans 10, where he said this about his sorrow and anguish over the lost condition of Jewish people. 
unless he reveals that, we don't know it. And if we don't know it, it can't help us interpret Scripture. Right. All right. Yeah, we got some time. Yeah. Segue into the sermon this morning. This morning, Jesus is going to tell us, unless we become like children, we will not enter the kingdom of God. And so one of the things that you want to determine as the exegete of Scripture, you want to say, well, why is he appealing to children? And so what I'm trying to do is discover what's in the mind of Jesus. And what I'm going to do is go through Mark and say, why does he appeal to children? And what is the issue? So I'll show you two summary slides this morning that will show you that Jesus appeals to the child, not because he wants us to be simpletons in our thinking, but because children had no status. And I'll show you a summary slide that that's a big issue in the book of Mark. Well, the other issue is helplessness. Children are absolutely helpless, and who receives the kingdom but those who realize that they're helpless before God? But what I'm going to have to do is to avoid that fallacy is show you evidence that that's exactly what is in the context of Mark. Okay, and so sometimes Bob had mentioned even last week, we put a lot of our work on the board to show you how we came to that conclusion because we want to avoid those types of fallacies. And so we'll show you the data saying this is why I think Jesus is alluding to the child in this way and not some other way. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, the mental acts fallacy, if applied to what Eric's talking about, it would be trying to discern some emotional state that Mark had. Mark's the writer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, was he, did he have a bad day? Uh, did he have a wife and kids and he, he loved his kids? We don't need to know that. It's, it's, that's opaque to us. We don't. Yeah. We don't see it. Mm-hmm. The text itself, according to authorial intent, gives us what we can know. And a lot of times it's repeated themes, and it's very worthwhile to see how a given author tells his story. And that's something we have to do. That's not the mental acts fallacy. You can do that. Eric, you're going to mention Mephibosheth, right? Yes, so exactly. I'm going to get into that and use him in my next article. That's a cool guy. I can relate to him. A dead dog from nowhere. <laughs> um, the easy one is Luke X, because Luke is such a brilliant writer. You can see how he tells a story. The Holy Spirit comes upon somebody, who are, a person who is considered righteous, whether it was Mary, Zachariah, Simeon, mm-hmm. Peter, Paul, whoever, the Holy Spirit comes upon somebody and they speak and what comes out of their mouth is a testimony about messianic salvation. And it goes all the way through Luke-Acts. This was really highlighted by a guy by the name of Robert Tannehill who wrote two volumes called The Narrative Unity of Luke-Acts, volumes one and two. And you look at it, it, the pattern persists. I don't need to know Luke's emotional state or his mental acts. I just need to know how he tells the story. Mm-hmm. Now you go to the story about Mephibosheth. I can't see his name very well. It, narrative, some people think, well, it's just a story, so it doesn't have any particular meaning. But we can understand the meaning of the author by just reading all the details that attend the situation. David showing mercy to somebody from a lineage that typically a king would destroy everybody unless somebody comes along and claims the throne, right? Okay, so you can see that the story writer, the inspired author of Scripture, wants us to get this particular message. So since I've learned that, and I I mentioned that in Sunday school, it just revolutionized my ability to gain understanding and insight from the narrative parts of Scripture. Cool. Because the author still has a point. Cool. Thanks, Bob. I think that Luke, or the, the mental acts fallacy is a good way of illustrating what I was going to say is that over the last uh, three sessions, I think I've talked about about 40 fallacies. Now, really, there's hundreds of them, and the mental acts fallacy being one example. Um, you could study this all day long. You know, it's, uh, there's lots of them. The ones that I showed are just the most common ones that you're going to come across. And uh, So I hope that it was fruitful for everybody. Um, 
Barb. Andy, I'm curious as a summary, and I don't know if this mm -hmm. is how you began uh, because I didn't catch the intro of the first class. Sure. Can you tell us how the study of logic has personally affected you and your relationships? At what point in your life <laughs> did you become interested in the study of logic and recognizing fallacies? Were sure. you still a child under your parents' authority? You know, um, I was listening to Todd Friel, who was on, it might have been Talk the Walk at the time, or he might have been Way of the Master Radio, I don't know. He does Wretched Radio now, and he had the authors of um, The Fallacy Detective on his show, and they talked about a lot of the fallacies that are in the book, and um, which are a lot of what I talked about today, and I just thought it was really interesting, and, and I realized that uh, getting to know these things would help me think things through more clearly, help me understand the scripture better, help me understand the world around me better, help me uh, make a better case for scripture and for Christ, uh, help me re uh, in, in um, evangelism and apologetics. Um, it really does, it's, it's a good foundation to have underneath your understanding of scripture. And it's, you know, it's, it's considered a, a subset of epistemology, which is how we know things. Um, you know, we gotta, if you're gonna understand scripture, you first know how to read the scripture like literally know what the letters mean. And once you know how to read, then you got to build up above that and know how to understand it. And this logic really helps to better understand it. And Eric's going to take over the next three, three weeks or four weeks? Did you decide? We'll see how much we can cram in in those three. Okay. Yeah. So it's going to be either three or four weeks, but he's going to try for three. And he's going to talk about formal logic. And um, that's something he's a lot stronger in. I'm going to be learning right along with everybody in that, but it's, that's also going to help build that foundation to better understand scripture and um, you know, everything in life, really. I'm curious so. as to how it's impacted your um, relationship with your children <laughs> um, as you communicate truth to them. Do you find yourself using I use fallacies? some fallacies. You know, sometimes I fall back on the old I told because I said so. You know, I think every parent does. <laughs> but <laughs> appeal to authority. Well, you know, sometimes that's really, sh that's a thought-terminating ter thought cliche, too. It's not just appeal to authority. Yeah, but you but don't have to debate with a three-year-old. <laughs> no, but I have to debate with my wife sometimes, who's a, who's a lawyer. And, uh, you know, she says, I don't want to hear your logic. <laughs> so, so she was really impressed when I told her about uh, Reba last week. I, she says, post hoc, what does that mean? Post hoc, ergo propter hoc? She was impressed, too, Reba. But, uh, yeah. So, you learn it from your sister? Well, she's a very smart girl. <laughs> so, uh, we have a little bit of extra time. We put together some some examples. I'm going to kind of quiz you. So, uh, see if you can spot the fallacies. <laughs> uh, the first one. This isn't a spot the fallacy. I wanted to share this because I didn't get it into the slides when we talked about association fallacies. A friend of mine from Singapore sent this to me. And the guy in the picture is Joseph Prince, who is kind of their, are they, would you call him Singapore's Joel Osteen? Yeah, he's actually spoken at Joel Osteen, this Joseph Prince. Mm -hmm. And he has kind of a hybrid theology. And he's, he's a word of faith. He seems to be that. And then he has some other stuff that would be similar to Les Feldig. Okay. Um, but I wouldn't consider him a theologian, uh, <laughs> you know, in that regard. Okay. Well, you, it's hard to read that. It's really small. But what uh, it says, the, the, the dark part on the top underneath Jesus, the next section down, says, Noah's name means rest. Noah found grace. Therefore, if we rest, we will find grace. <laughs> <laughs> And then another one down kind of got just the one on the, the section on the bottom says another example. Esau means hairy. In Malachi, God says, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I hated. Therefore, God hates hairy people. <laughs> so, uh, but. so here's an example. Can you spot the fallacy in this quote? A friend of mine sent this to me on Facebook. He wanted to know what I would consider this as a fallacy. You know, what fallacy would I label this as? And I understand that it's relatively recent. It was by Jimmy Carter. 
Jimmy Carter says, if you don't want your tax dollars going to help the poor, then stop saying you want a country based on Christian values because you don't. Can anybody besides Bob and Eric spot? There might be a few different fallacies in here, if you can. <laughs> if you don't want your tax dollars going to uh, fund abortions uh, for underage uh, uh, or people who, ch children who aren't adults, mm -hmm. then you must not want to uh, help poor people, right? That could be embedded I in mean, the statement. The, the logic is flawed because it implies that if, if you don't want to pay whatever the government demands mm -hmm. of you, then, then you don't love poor people. You don't appreciate it. So that could be a red herring? Shall not steal. Yeah. Appeal to authority and possibly a weak analogy as well. Yeah, I don't have those under what I would spot, but I would say that's a good example of appeal to authority and weak analogy. Appeal, uh, to appeal to emotion, for sure. We can give money to the poor without the government taking it from us in the, the, at first. Right. I saw a red herring. I saw a no true Scotsman on this. Um, he's, he's basically saying that you know a true Christian would want to help the poor, and he'd want to use the government to do it. That's, that's yeah. the key. He wants to use the government to do it. Uh, it's also got some begging the question involved in it. You know, he's, he's got the conclusion that using tax dollars to help the poor is embedded in his premise that doing so is Christian. Florida, America's most popular tourist destination. Can you spot the fallacy there? <laughs> for all America. You, had, you knew what all America's thinking. Yeah, we get the mic? Just as if you knew what all America was thinking. So Right. But we actually went over this one today. Yeah. Remember the name of this one? Hasty generalization. Hasty generalization? Um, well, they're not saying everyone loves Florida. They're just saying it's, it's the most popular. How do you know? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, that's true. I would call this a, a bandwagon fallacy. Whoa. <laughs> Pardon? Presumptive language? Eric has called it a sumptive language. Presumption. Presumptive language? Presumption. Presumption. Okay. This one's my three-year-old. He woke up, he says, my tummy hurts. My tummy hurts because I took a nap. <laughs> he said this about three or four days ago. <laughs> Even though he's a three-year-old, it is a fallacy. <laughs> uh, that would be your post-hoc ergo propter hoc right there. <laughs> So I, I talked about Piers Morgan having Larry Pratt on, and this was another quote from that same show. Piers Morgan says to Larry Pratt, your solution to the problem, meaning the problem of, uh, of crazies going around shooting places up, would be to arm every school, every church, every hospital, everywhere that members of the public could be. Can you spot the fallacy on that one? Pardon? <laughs> is there a problem with that? <laughs> An armed society is a polite society. Yeah. Hey, get the mic. Well, we recorded, and we'd like to hear you on the recording. This would be a straw man. Okay. Um, Larry Pratt would say everybody should have the opportunity to be armed, but he's not saying that every place should be armed, necessarily. It, it's superficially similar. That's what, if you remember a straw man, the argument is superficially similar to what Larry actually said, but it's not what Larry actually believes. He's, he wouldn't legislate that every building on, in, in the United States has to have somebody who's armed. It's just, just to say that everybody under their Second Amendment rights and their duty to protect themselves and their families should have the right to be armed. 
The mental acts, uh, yeah, it, it's questioning the motives, it's certainly, yes. Uh, okay, this one is from our own Eric Dalma. <laughs> he was helping me come up with these a uh, few nights ago, so I, I like this example. Just, yeah, we'll have you tell the story. Uh, he says, what we have here is a non-homogeneous linear systems of Cauchy-Euler equations utilizing the exponential matrix functions and the concavity of points of inflection to find the quasi-static expansions of an ideal equation. <laughs> Appeal to authority. I think you said it. Is that what you said? Appeal to authority? Is this a slide from his sermon? No, 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 no. <laughs> Yeah, you gotta tell the story. I gotta defend myself, right? This is a, it is a, a an appeal to authority. It's a, a subcategory called prestige jargon, and so it's the old card that you play when you're not winning. You just try to baffle everybody with these. <laughs> believe it or not, I I, I told I told Andy I said I can't believe the dumb stuff that I remember. I memorized this. It was from my brother, was an aerospace engineer, and he had a section in a flyer called Dr. Clausen's Corner. And these were all seminars that these engineer eggheads were going to have. And so I just memorized them because I wasn't doing so well in eighth grade science. I wasn't the greatest student. So I raised my hand and I said, what about the non-homogeneous linear systems and calculator equations? <laughs> and I was appealing to prestige jargon to impress my teacher. So uh, I have to admit that's where it came from. So. All right. <laughs> we'll do one more. We're out of time, Andy. Pardon? Out of time, aren't we? Yeah, let's do one more, and then we'll, we'll, we'll adjourn. Um, this was from that fallacy detective book. You shouldn't pray to the God of the Bible because he doesn't exist, but you should pray to your dead ancestors because you couldn't pray to them if they didn't exist. <laughs> Any ideas of the fallacy? Not a false dichotomy. Um, I would call this begging the question. Yeah. And that's what the book calls it, begging the question. It's it's a it's an implied circular reasoning. So. <laughs> yeah, they would yeah. be say they'd be saying God doesn't exist. That's their begging the question. Yep. And because you're alive you had ancestors. Mm -hmm. So you know there's ancestors, God doesn't exist. Well, we'll wrap it up there. Um, that that will conclude our in, informal fallacies. Thank you. Thank you. I had a lot of fun, and I'm I'm I was it was just a joy to do this, and I look forward to the sessions with Eric under formal logic that will start next week. Thank you.